This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 25th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. The message is by Mother Nancy Stanton. Today, we look at the Middle East and many times today we get really kind of confused about their belief system, don't you think? Um, the structure that they have and, and how they believe some of the things that they do believe. Um, this is true with today's gospel also. Although when we listen to it and we hear Jesus' question that's given by the chief priests and the elders, um, what's the correct answer? In his book, Culture, World of Jesus, John Pilch states that a Christian missionary in the Middle East used to share his, this parable about the two sons, the verses 28 through 30, with the villagers that he visited. And he would ask them, which one do you think was the better son? And the vast majority of them would answer the son who said yes to his father, even though he did not go to work in the vineyard, was without a doubt the better son. Why would he answer that? Anyone have an idea? Because he said the right thing. He honored the father by telling him, yes, he was going to do it. And they feel that that's the honorable thing to do. Now, I don't know about how you parents are, but if I ask my kids to do something and they tell me they're going to do it and then they don't, I'm disappointed in them at the least. I expect them to do what they tell me that they're going to do, right? But that's not true in the Middle East. So we have to look at that. It was what the father wanted to hear. And that he never went to work in the vineyard is beside the point. Which in the Middle East, honor is the main thing. Now remember also that life in the Middle East is very public. And honor, again, being the core value of this culture is going to be very publicly known. The dialogue between the father and the son in this parable takes place not in a private setting like we would think of today, not just between the two of them, but rather in a public setting within view and earshot of many of the villagers around. And so the father would rather have the son be obedient to the point of saying, yes, father, I'll go, than to be disobedient and disrespectful. Honor is a public claim to worth that is confined by public acknowledgement of that claim by others. The father gives a very public command to two sons. He claims to honor, his claim to honor is that 
the sons will respond with respect, and the public watches the response. One son responds honorably, and the judgment of the crowd is that the father's claim is valid and it's affirmed by that son. The other son responds what is considered shamefully, and he publicly humiliates his father, and the crowd's immediate judgment would deny the father's claim to honor in this instance. It's not likely that the crowd or the father went to check on the subsequent behavior of either son. In other words, they didn't care about how it worked out, but what was said. Jesus didn't ask which son behaved honorably. He asked which of the two did the will of his father. Now, modern Middle Easterners would certainly echo the judgment of Jesus' listeners, the first. That is, the one who ultimately went and worked in the vineyard as he was directed by his father. They would recognize the importance of that obedience, but the honorable appearance was even more important. Pilch concludes by saying the toll collectors and harlots are like the first son. Initially, they said to not they said no to God. But hearing John the Baptist preaching, they were converted, and they're doing now what pleases God. The chief priest and the elders are like the second son, and they too heard John's preaching and saw the respects and the response of the toll collectors and harlots. They feigned acceptance but refused to accept John as a messenger from God, and they gave an honorable word, but that's not enough. So, by now, you may be asking yourself the question, well, what does that have to do with us? What about us? What does this parable have to tell us today? And that's a good question. But first of all, each one of us needs to ask ourselves the question that our Lord asked his listeners, and that's which son are we? It's kind of like a question on the show Jeopardy, isn't it? And the answer is... Okay, so which one was it? The no and then the yes? Or the yes and then the no? Which one do we think we are? How many go with the first son? Can I see a raising of the hands? How many would go with the first son? They'd say yes, and then not go. That's the second one. Okay, they'd say no, and then go. How many would do that? Few. How many would do the second one? They'd say yes, and then not go. You mean you all do every single thing that you're ever asked to do? Let me ask that question again, then. 
which one of us would say yes and then not do what we said we were going to do? We have three people, four, and the rest of you are all saints. Could answer whatever is best for me at the moment. Good answer. Would anybody else feel that way? Anybody else feel that way, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, it all stays here. Only God's listening. <laughs> would, would that be anybody else's feeling? What's best for me at the moment? Yeah. Oh. I was asked this morning, did you really have a call, and what was that like? Because I don't know if I have a call, this person said. I don't know what a call is. Well, yeah, I did really have a call. And sure, I just said, oh, yeah, God, I want to do this. I've got six kids, and I want to go to seminary. I said, oh, no, God, you have lost your mind. You have absolutely lost your mind. This is not something I want to do. I can't do this with six children. I can't do this with everything else that I'm doing. And we can't afford it. <laughs> and that's what he said to me. <laughs> and did he keep on me? Mm -hmm. And how did I know it? Because I was miserable. Absolutely, positively miserable. And how did I finally say yes? When I found myself flat down on the floor in a pitch black church, sobbing my eyes out and saying, let go of me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I can't take this anymore. Yes, there's really a call. God really does want us to do the things that he wants us to do. Now, you know what? I did manage to go to seminary, and I managed to work a part-time job at um, Huntington Clothiers, and I embroidered names on shirts. Um, and I got the job because I knew how to sew, and I knew how to use a computer. Had I ever used a computerized sewing machine before? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it seemed logical that I could understand one, I could understand the other. And I took care of six children and a husband and a house. And at that time, we only had two dogs and one cat. And I made straight A's. How did I do that? I don't know. It's called God. It's called God. I couldn't have ever done it myself. But God was there with me, and he was showing me what to do. So we go back to the point. Do we ever say no, and then we end up doing what God wants us to do? Yeah, there are many times that we do that. And do we ever say yes? and then end up not doing what God wants us to do. And that's true too. 
Actually, the correct answer to those questions is neither one of them. Huh? Another option. The other option is that we are both of these sons. We act like both of them. And we do this all of the time. One of the things that I get tickled about is when people say, I will pray for you. Do you always remember to pray for that person after you've said that? I get one yes. Always. I'm sorry? You say it so very little, okay. So you're very discriminatory about when you say it and how you say it. That's good. Uh, I think that is good. But so many times people will say, I need you to pray for me. And I think I'm going to. But if you don't see me write it down, say, write my name down. Because if I don't write it down, I probably am going to forget it. Now, God is a wonderful God, and he will remind me in the weirdest times. You said you were going to pray for so-and-so, and you haven't done this. Maybe you ought to do it now. Okay, like that's at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I really wanted to sleep. But God says, let's get up and do the praying. We have all, I think, experienced times that it's easier to avoid unpleasant situations by just saying that we would do something but never have the intentions of doing it. On Facebook, it has these things that come up and, and there's a, a party or there's a this or there's a that, and it says yes, no, and maybe. How many people have put down maybe and know darn well you're not going to go? Yeah. I've done it. I've done it, I have to admit. I'm pretty darn certain I'm not going to go, but I'll put maybe, and that will make the person feel better. So now that we've answered Jesus' question, what else can we get from this gospel passage? I think another important part of the parable is contained in the wording of Jesus' question. Which of the two did his father's will? You see, we're the ones who are called to do God's will. And if we know what's good for us, we will either come to the conclusion that doing God's will is best for us either early in our life or late in our life, and we'll try to decide what is God's will. Jesus has shown us what God's will is by the way he lived. All we have to do is look at Jesus' life and we see what God's will is for us. In a few weeks, in our lessons, we'll have a summary of God's will for us in the one commandment. 
love the Lord your God with all and your neighbor with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Um, how often are we guilty of saying we love one another and then not following through on showing that love? It's an interesting story that was written in 1969. It was written by a mother, and she said, a week after my son started first grade, he came home with the news that Roger, the only African-American in class, was his playground partner. Remember what was happening in 1969? I don't know where you were, but I was in Louisiana. I was teaching in a school that had to integrate and had never been integrated before. A Christian school, an Episcopal day school. And the question at that time was, how are we going to do this and not lose all of the other students? What a horrible thing to have to contemplate. How are we going to do this and not lose all of our other students? But it was the big question of the time. This mother swallowed and said, that's nice. How long before someone else gets him as a partner? Oh, I've got him for good, replied Bill. In another week, I had news that Bill had asked if Roger could be his desk partner. Now, unless you were born and reared in the Deep South, as I was, you cannot know what this means. And I went for an appointment with the teacher. And she met me with very tired, cynical eyes. One of my greatest embarrassments, this is me, not the mother in here speaking, one of my greatest embarrassments in my life was the year of integration in Louisiana. Now, I was from the North, and I'd gotten in a lot of trouble at being the damn Yankee that opened her mouth every time they thought I shouldn't. But I did, and I got put to teach Head Start down in Gosport, Louisiana, the first year of Head Start in an all-black community. And I really didn't know quite how to handle it. Kids came to school and they had every kind of worm that you can imagine to the point where we had to hire doctors to come into the school and take care of them. Now, I had always preached equality for both black and white. And this made me stop and think, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I do, but maybe I don't. Until I finally went to the home of some of the students and found out that their floors were dirt floors. They sat on the floors. The dirt got mixed in with the things that they ate and the things that they did, and it was logical that they had the different kinds of worms that they had and had to be taken care of. 
wasn't something that they did. The homes were spotless. They were immaculately clean, as clean as you can keep a dirt floor. But it, as this mother said, she went to meet with the teacher, and she was met with a very tired, cynical eye. Well, I suppose you want a new desk partner for your child, too, she said. Can you wait a few minutes? I have another mother coming in right now. And I looked up to see a woman my age, and my heart raced as I realized she must be Roger's mother. She had a quiet dignity and much poise. But neither trait could cover the anxiety I heard in her question of, how is Roger doing? I hope he's keeping up with the other children. If he isn't, just let me know. She hesitated as she made herself ask, is he giving you any trouble of any kind? I mean, what with his having to change deaths so much, I really questioned whether he's misbehaving. I felt the terrible tension in her, for she knew the answer. But I was proud of that first grade teacher for her gentle reply. No, Roger is not giving me any trouble. I try to move all the children around the first few weeks until each has just the right partner. I introduced my son and myself and said that my son was to be Roger's new partner and hoped that they would like each other. Even then, I knew it was only a surface wish, not a deep-felt one, but it helped her, I could see. Twice, Roger invited Bill to come to his home with him, and I found excuses. And then came the heartache that I will always suffer. On my birthday, Bill came home from school with a grimy piece of paper folded into a very small square. Unfolding it, I found three flowers and happy birthday crayoned on the paper and a nickel. That's from Roger, Bill said. It's his milk money. When I said today was your birthday, he made me bring it to you. He said, you are his friend because you are the only mother who didn't make him get another desk partner. In the back of the chicken soup book from which this story came, it says about the author, Mavis Burton Ferguson was born May of 1916 in a tiny hamlet of Berlin, Georgia. She was raised in a strong Christian family amidst the backdrop of Southern racial prejudice that influenced her early years of the world. Mavis' husband was a career officer in the military, and this story took place at one of the stops on one of his tours of duty. Through this experience, Mavis was able to take her racial blinders off and see the magnitude of the golden rule that's taught in the Bible. We don't hear much about the golden rule anymore, do we? That was something that in my day and time we heard a lot about. It was up on posters in the church, do unto others 
as you would want others to do unto you. How much do we think about that? I'm sure that Mavis would be the first to agree that she was saying yes, but she was doing no. She was living in a strong Christian family, but still not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what we're talking about when we say that we don't love others and then do or say that you love them. Do you say no and then yes or yes and no? Think about it a bit. Think about what God wants us to do. Read about how Jesus lived his life. Think about Jesus when he went to the cross. Did he want to go? What did he ask God to do? Take this cup away. But his next line was, thy will be done. And that's what we need to remember and we need to look at as we answer his calling. Whether his calling comes through another person, whether it comes from him directly, whether it comes from scripture, wherever it comes from, we need to remember his answer to one of the biggest questions that he was asked. And his answer was always, do unto me as you will. Amen. You were just listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.